Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Dr. Brazil. Welcome to the Asia Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Dr. Matthew Brazil, and he will be presenting a lecture on his co-authored book, Chinese Communist Espionage. Dr. Matthew Brazil is a non-resident fellow at the Jamestown Foundation. He worked in Asia for over 20 years as a U.S. Army officer, American diplomat, and corporate security manager. You can purchase his book on the IWP events website. Thank you, Dr. Brazil, for having us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm glad to be able to speak to such a distinguished audience. So today, um, I'm giving an overview of uh, what's known, uh, publicly known anyway, about Beijing's espionage apparatus. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, directly about the book, but the book is about that topic. Okay, let's go to the next slide. First, a quick commercial for the Jamestown Foundation. You can see uh, the newsletters we put out in the bottom right corner of the slide. And we examine Eurasia from a strategic angle, looking at both elite politics, the security problems, and, uh, and foreign policy issues, and economic ones as well. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. So just so you know who, I'm, who I am, um, I spent my time in uh, the US military and then with the Commerce Department, both in the United States and uh, overseas. Uh, doing export promotion and export control work. Um, afterward, I was a security investigator for a long time for Intel Corporation and for uh, another uh, specialty chemicals company in Asia. Um, and my graduate study has focused on the politics and, and the history of the Chinese Communist uh, espionage organs uh, controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So I have these main messages that we'll uh, review at the end as well, that Beijing spies mostly like other countries. They do some things that are, you might call Chinese characteristics, such as uh, focusing on foreign technology acquisition and theft. Um, their policies under Xi Jinping have increased the risk of, uh, of interference from the host government against uh, both businesses and other organizations in China, um, and also the risk of uh, problems for tourists and others who are visiting. Foreign companies are mostly staying in China because they still are making money in spite of the rising business risk. Um, at the same time, uh, China's adversaries uh, face a newly assertive People's Republic in foreign policy, in its foreign policy and in their uh, increasingly coordinated espionage and influence operations. All right, next slide, please. So now we'll talk a bit about why China and its intelligence community are different 
um, which I think will help us understand the rest of the presentation afterward. Next slide. If you've never heard of the century of humiliation, this is something that's taught in all the schools in China. Um, when I lived there uh, the first time in the early 90s, my children were in Chinese schools and they heard all about it. And this has to do with the difficulties suffered by China as a nation after the first opium war that ended in 1842, which resulted in an increasing and growing number of um, uh, growing an area of foreign influence, um, uh, uh, areas of influence. So you can see on this map that the British in green were, were here and the French were there and the Russians were over there and the Germans were in Shandong province and so forth. And these weren't colonies as much as they were spheres of influence where uh, foreign governments had a great deal of um, uh, influence that exceeded that of the Chinese government. Uh, so this is uh, something that everybody keeps in mind when, when they're in, in China, when they're thinking about their past history and it impacts intelligence operations and intelligence analysis as well. Next slide, please. Another main concern of uh, the Chinese polity, of the Chinese Communist Party too, is um, millenarian movements in Chinese history. Because when dynasties have been overthrown, uh, if it isn't about a foreign invasion, it's about a uh, eruption of, of um, outrage from below. And this is what happened uh, in, in a number of cases. Uh, and and it's what the Communist Party really fears is a loss of the so-called mandate of heaven in the minds of the populace, um, the right to govern and a, a uh, revolt from below. And this is one reason why they are so focused on the Falun Gong, the uh, Falun Dafa movement, because this is, um, is a mass movement that is in a number of places and all over China. And it's often ignored by the authorities, even though the authorities are urged to go after it. And even though the public security ministry is, um, is vociferously um, uh, going after Falun Gong practitioners. Um, they have an ability to organize that, uh, that the Communist Party also has, and that's a threat. Let's go on to the next slide, please. Popular sentiment is uh, certainly a core interest of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, this is a photograph I took um, about 10 years ago in, um, in the Forbidden City, the, the Palace Museum in Beijing. Um, I was walking along with this uh, group of uh, tourists as a sort of an uninvited guest from Fujian province and they were being led through the Forbidden City. Um, and they were happily chattering and, and uh, having a great time, smiles on every face when the guide began describing how in the Second Opium War in 1860, when Beijing was, uh, was invaded by Western powers, uh, the French were the first to get themselves, uh, get their troops into the Forbidden City and their troops uh, proceeded to scrape the gold off of everything they could find. And one of the things they scraped the gold from was this big ceremonial urn. So as the, um, as the um, tour guide was talking about this, the faces grew dark in the direction you see in this photo, and it was quite something to witness. And the point here is that 
is that all Chinese learn about the sensory of humiliation, but when they start talking about specifics, when they start learning um, uh, more specifics about things that happened, um, they can get angry. And this is a factor that figures into uh, Chinese politics. It also figures into um, intelligence tasking, uh, I believe, and, uh, and priorities. Next slide, please. And so as a consequence, um, chaos is, uh, is, is one thing that the regime is, is uh, determined to avoid and uh, that the population wants to avoid. And so most Chinese people concern, uh, consider a uh, stern leader who is upright and is not corrupt to be vital. Uh, and, and that's the way people see Xi Jinping today, for the most part, anyway. He's not universally popular, but he is a, a, quite a popular figure. Next slide, please. At the same time, uh, there are kingmakers in the Chinese Communist Party. Um, Susan Shirk, who's now at UC San Diego, uh, formerly of the State Department, um, coined the term the control cartel to describe the most powerful elements of the party and the government, which are in red there, the, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and the People's Armed Police the organization and propaganda departments of the party and the ministries of state security and public security. Uh, they have more political leverage than other parts of the government and party, and they are generally not friendly toward the United States, Japan, or Taiwan. And so one thing I tell business people uh, when we talk about doing business in China and what are the business risks, um, I make sure to underline this, that these are the real powers in the background people you deal with at the local level and the local party committee, their job is to uh, increase investment and keep you sweet and keep you in China. Uh, when, when the rubber meets the road, when the winds start shifting, uh, their job is not to protect your interests as a foreign company. Their job is to keep you in line. Next slide, please. And so, Xi Jinping has become this popular figure. He's popular for his anti-corruption campaign that he's been pursuing, that has been going on now for a number of years, for expanding Chinese power and influence abroad, especially standing up to the United States and Japan. At the same time, there are people inside China who um, have doubts about him. And indeed, if he ever has a big failure, let's say he gets into a, an armed confrontation with a foreign power that China does not do well in, then he could easily, uh, I think, meet the fate of Khrushchev, who after the Cuban Missile Crisis was uh, out of power a year later. Let's go on to the next slide. So it's a brittle system as well as one that exhibits great strength at times. Um, back when I was assigned to go to China as a commercial officer in the early 90s, and I was learning about uh, the export um, promotion programs that we would be um, pursuing there, one of the things I kept hearing over and over again is that China is different because the export promotion programs that were being used in other economies were not being used in China because they wouldn't work because China's economy was uh, dominated by the Communist Party and the government, because uh, state-owned enterprises were 
uh, a major part of the economy because the economy was considered to be uh, socialist in nature. Um, and so uh, these factors plus others, such as the uh, very powerful internal security apparatus that uh, um, can change business conditions uh, at a wink, um, and occasional purges that go on in, in government down to the local level, um, it made for much more uncertainty than, than was seen in other uh, economies, especially ones that were export-oriented uh, like China's was at that time. Um, since Xi Jinping's ascent, these things have not changed very much. Uh, of course, there are, there are things that have changed as well, um, such as uh, the increasing efforts to control the narrative about China abroad, where we see Chinese students, for example, holding demonstrations uh, against uh, having the feelings of the Chinese people hurt in, in Australia, in, uh, in Canada, and in other places. Um, and so this, this has led to a situation, of course, where China is more at odds with its major trading partners and major diplomatic partners than, uh, than it ever has been. And so uh, there's been an effort in China to, um, to uh, cultivate suspicion of foreigners and find who among the foreigners are the spies that have been sent to uh, gather intelligence on China. And there have been crackdowns uh, against uh, enemies, especially those who are, um, who are corrupt. But there's also been an anti-spy campaign going on uh, ever since about 2014. Okay, next slide, please. An important part to keep in mind about how different China is, is that, is that the party has been successful in cultivating loyalty amongst uh, the most well-off in society. So in this four-color chart, you can see on the left in red, the number of people who are classified as poor in China going downward, ever downward, uh, the middle income uh, people staying about the same, low income rather. And then you get this, this upper middle and upper crust of, um, of people in China who are making a fair amount of money, um, enough money to go on vacation in China uh, when they have time and even go on vacation overseas when they have time. Uh, and and uh, consumer goods now, of course, are, are much more important in the economy than they used to be. And the Chinese consumer is becoming more and more of a, uh, of a powerful force in the economy. And concurrent with this has been um, a very successful party effort to cultivate the loyalty of the people who have done well in society. Uh, and indeed, by doing a number of things, including recruiting the top 10% of every college class uh, into the party at the age of 22, they've managed to build up um, a powerful bulwark of support uh, and power in society. Let's go on to the next slide, please. So with that background, let's talk a little bit about the uh, history and the, the history makes it, um, um, the history is important for two reasons. One is, uh, is the background that, that uh, should always uh, be considered if you're looking at any historical and modern phenomenon, but the other is that the early days of the Chinese communist uh, espionage effort are, are, um, are a model for recruits who are coming in today. Next slide, please. 
the first very successful spy ring that is like a household uh, word in China uh, is referred to as the Three Heroes of the Dragon's Lair. Uh, this was a group of communist agents who uh, got themselves into positions in nationalist, uh, the central government of the time, nationalist intelligence apparatus. Um, and they were able to obtain intelligence that kept the Communist Party from being uh, rounded up and annihilated a number of times between 1929 and 1931. Um, however, in 1931, their, their chief, not any one of these three, but their chief named Gu Xunzhang, um, defected to the nationalists. And this almost destroyed the party, uh, but these three managed to get the warning out so that people could um, flee to safety. The man in the middle there with the glasses on, uh, Lee Kanong, is the only one who survived very long. The other two were killed on the long march that uh, was in 1934 to 35. Uh, and and uh, during this time, uh, it's, it's portrayed as a time of, of clever operations and brave heroes, uh, but it was actually the beginning of a very desperate um, period. Let's go on to the next slide, please. In 1931, when Gu Xunzhang uh, defected to the nationalists, you can see in that third column there, it says CCP or other communists captured, um, that uh, thousands of people were rounded up and, um, and many of them were killed uh, or induced to, um, to uh, defect under threat of torture. And then in 1932, it was a huge number, 11,900, and then it gradually um, petered off from there. But the point here is that uh, the 1930s, the Communist Party was almost destroyed and it, they had to, uh, to evacuate the cities and they went uh, along with intelligence officers and many others. They evacuated the cities and went to the area where uh, Mao Zedong and Judah had started uh, the Red Army in Jiangxi province in China's south. Next slide, please. During these desperate years, um, the, the, the Red Army in Jiangxi was also in trouble. Um, the nationalists managed to uh, encircle them and began these encirclement campaigns. There were five of them all together that uh, gradually uh, tightened the noose around the uh, communist areas. This man here, Mo Xiong, was an officer on the nationalist uh, army staff um, and was able to get the plans for the fifth encirclement campaign that might've been the end of the Red Army um, and send them uh, using secret writing, send them in a series of student books uh, by courier to the communist area. And if it wasn't for this man, uh, there might have been no communist movement after 1934. And he was a CCP intelligence agent. There have been uh, books written about him, and I haven't found any films yet, but there are plenty of films about others, too. Next slide, please. So quickly, during the long march that followed, when the, uh, the communists made their epic retreat and went up to the northwest of China, um, the military leadership was restored to Mao Zedong after a brief period of, uh, of, his, of him being overthrown. Um, and CCP intelligence was very important here as well. Um, using stolen code books, they were uh, from their own agents, they were able to 
uh, read and ciphered um, nationalist communications and avoid uh, the nationalist armies and airstrikes that were being sent to destroy them. Uh, and Mao actually called signal intelligence the lamp that lit the darkness on the long march. Next slide, please. So when they finally settled in Yan'an, uh, the communists made an attempt to contact the world again. They began a propaganda drive um, that was partly um, uh, instituted by the CCP intelligence um, officers of the time, including Li Kanong, who himself was able to uh, uh, get to some of Chiang Kai-shek's, the nationalist leader, get to some of Chiang Kai-shek's relatives and uh, urge them toward, to support the United Front with the communists to fight Japan. So this is, that was an early example of um, uh, an interlocking effort between uh, influence operations and intelligence operations that I think exists today, although um, that requires further study. And so during this period, uh, just after the, the uh, Japanese uh, invaded China proper in July of 1937, um, the communists uh, upgraded their intelligence effort. They established the Social Affairs Department, um, being, department being a higher ranking organization within the Communist Party, which made it into uh, what I like to call a core business because it put intelligence on the same level as organization work, propaganda work, and military work. Next slide, please. So this uh, social affairs department, or the Shohui Bu, um, was uh, placed along with organization, propaganda, and military uh, affairs, was, was uh, placed in the liaison offices that the communists had in the nationalist Chinese held cities, so they could coordinate their anti-Japanese war effort, uh, which had its ups and downs, but that would be getting into another uh, topic. These liaison offices, uh, again, they had these four main um, functions in them, and they were considered to be, uh, in, in the communist own writings, they were considered to be a uh, model for their diplomatic um, missions abroad that they established after the 1949 victory. Uh, and there is uh, Lee Kanong in the middle, once again. Okay, next slide, please. Then came a very difficult period um, after a, uh, a period of, um, of a high level of admission into the Communist Party uh, of people who were not the traditional uh, recruits, that is uh, bourgeois uh, students and others, business people. Um, the, uh, the Communist Party started to get a little bit paranoid about all these people they had admitted who uh, were not workers, peasants, and soldiers. And so eventually this led to um, an escalating spy hunt that, uh, that culminated in 1943 and into 1944. It was only a telegram, a very stern one from Stalin that put this spy hunt to bed and forced Mao to, uh, to uh, actually apologize to uh, the Communist Party for the excesses of that period. Um, and uh, the man on the right there, Kang Sheng, was uh, Mao's uh, tool that Mao used to pursue these, uh, 
these campaigns. And he was uh, removed from office after that by Mao, but came back during the Cultural Revolution and took over Chinese Communist intelligence once again. Um, when Japan, interestingly, when Japan surrendered in 1945, uh, Li Keqiang um, pursued a campaign to force desk-bound spies in Yan'an and in the rear areas to volunteer for hazardous duty uh, doing undercover work behind enemy lines. Um, and that is considered to be uh, one of the highlights of his career that people learn about today when they are uh, recruited, when they're hired by state security to, uh, to be officers, uh, intelligence officers. Okay, next slide. During the Marshall mission, there was a major um, success by CCP intelligence. Uh, they uncovered the American ultimatum to the nationalists to negotiate or face an aid cutoff. Uh, there's Lee Kanong again um, in the left, bottom left there. Um, he's posing with uh, Ye Jian Ying, who was in charge of the communist delegation to the Marshall mission. And on the right and in the middle, George Hottam one of the first Americans to join the Chinese Communist Party, uh, who had himself a close relationship with CCP intelligence and used to brag about it when he was in Yan'an to uh, the other foreigners, the few other foreigners who were there, including the Russians who wrote about him. Okay, next slide, please. So the communist revolution uh, ended in, with the 1949 victory. And with that came a big change uh, in government and in the party and also in CCP intelligence. Let's go on to the next slide. So Lee Kanong's hanging around in this slide too. He's at the bottom right there. And he was put in charge of all foreign intelligence operations. Uh, and and his organization was no longer involved with purges the way it had been involved in 1943 and 1944. Instead, all internal security functions were transferred to the new Ministry of Public Security led by Luo Ching. Uh, they did not only standard policing um, and supervising of mass organizations to increase their reach, um, but they also had secret police functions and they did a massive recruitment of informants in society um, as uh, interestingly outlined and detailed by uh, the book by Michael Schoenhals, um, which I think is called Mao's Spies, uh, which is about the 1940s and 50s, uh, rather the 1950s and 60s. Uh, efforts to recruit so many spies in society um, that it rivaled the efforts of the East German Stasi uh, after World War II. Foreign intelligence, on the other hand, um, was split between the military and the foreign ministry and the, uh, uh, and the party itself. Because of Lee Kanong's um, uh, illness and because of the Korean War, consolidating it under one organization, under one roof, was delayed until 1955, which was a difficult year in many ways, uh, coincidentally, for the Communist Party. Uh, let's go on to the next slide, please. Because 1955 was a year when uh, one of their, their um, um, legendary spies, spy masters from the revolution, was accused by Mao of being a traitor 
and a thousand people uh, affiliated with him or associated with him were either demoted or or uh, fired or put into prison um, on suspicion of being foreign agents. And so that year, uh, 1955, Lee Kanong was uh, made the head of the new foreign intelligence agency called the Investigations Department. Um, and they immediately began to, in spite of those, the setback of the purge, they immediately began to um, establish um, stations abroad, uh, mostly out of Chinese diplomatic um, uh, missions. They had them in Macau and in uh, Hong Kong under unofficial cover that was recognized by the uh, occupying powers of those two former colonies. Um, they had them in, in uh, embassies and consulates abroad. And in Hong Kong and, and Macau, there was a special role for these two places because they were windows on the world, uh, not only for Chinese business, but for Chinese intelligence operations as well. Uh, these territories were used to uh, uh, not only get information uh, from foreign media and other sources, but also to uh, recruit foreigners and to meet agents from, uh, that, were, that were operating for the Communist Party there and elsewhere. Okay, next slide, please. During those early years, um, there were political campaigns seeking enemies within, uh, and, and it was uh, similar in some ways because of the, the um, mass application of uh, suppression of counter-revolutionaries and, and uh, finding spies the mass application in society. It was similar to, in some ways, to the, the uh, purges of 1943 to 44. Um, and it made China into a very difficult counterintelligence target. Uh, so during this time, the CIA and the, uh, the Taiwan, uh, the nationalists on Taiwan were trying their best to infiltrate East China and, uh, and they were failing. They, their agents kept getting caught. Uh, an exception was um, the, uh, the effort against uh, Tibet in, later in the 1950s, after the Dalai Lama, uh, in particular after the Dalai Lama fled in 1959, um, the effort to, to put armed groups into, uh, into Tibet and to uh, arm people who wanted to revolt against the communists was relatively successful. Um, this book on the right is a very good one, Raiders of the China Coast by the late Frank Holliber, if you're looking for a rollicking read. Slide, please. Some of their notable successes, uh, uh, Larry Wu Tai Chin or Jin Wu Dai was an agent inside the CIA for a long time. And he was only discovered because of, uh, of somebody who was a traitor on the Chinese side. Uh, this man in the picture, John Tsang, um, was an agent inside the Hong Kong police. He actually um, was sent into Hong Kong um, by CCP intelligence with instructions to get himself a good job where he could have access to uh, British thinking. And he ended up in the police and was a high-ranking police officer when he was arrested in 1961. He was... Um, very interesting case. He was expelled and sent back to China, where he became the officer in charge in the investigations department of all operations in Hong Kong and Macau, you know, based in Guangzhou, nearby Guangzhou. And then there's Bernard Borsico, uh, the subject of the movie M. Butterfly, I think it's called. 
uh, starring John Lone. Next slide, please. A singular success that may or may not be connected to CCP intelligence was the, uh, the um, exfiltration out of the United States. Um, really, he was deported of uh, Chen Xuesun, who became the father of Chinese rocketry. Uh, he had been uh, uh, someone who was who was uh, went to occasional communist meetings in the 30s. This came to the attention of the FBI. Uh, he had been working on the U.S. Uh, space nascent space program, rocketry program, and was taken out of it uh, as a result of that. Uh, so when he was uh, expelled in exchange for some US POWs in 1955. Uh, it's, it's considered in retrospect to not be one of our best moves uh, because it led to uh, the Chinese space program. There's no evidence of uh, any intelligence operation connected to him, although I think further study is warranted. But if you go to the Chen Shui-sun Library at Jiao Tong University in Shanghai, then you can see amongst the uh, displays a secret document that he apparently brought with him from the United States. Uh, it's a great, uh, great place to visit. It's like a, a museum with a lot of uh, audiovisual and, and other um, attractions. It's definitely worth a visit if you're in Shanghai. Okay, next slide, please. Now let's talk about the modern agencies and the, the advent of the world's, I think, uh, best surveillance state, or maybe the worst surveillance state. Next slide. So here's another eye chart, but it's, it's illustrative of something that's important to Chinese counterintelligence officials, I, I think. Um, and that is that during the period of um, China's worst nightmares in the last part of the uh, century of humiliation, when the Japanese were encroaching into Manchuria and eventually um, invaded China, the uh, leading up to the actual invasion of China in 1937, you can see a peak of foreigners living in China. And then after Deng Xiaoping's reforms um, got off the ground and going into the 21st century, you can see the number of foreigners also increases. Now this is not a big number compared to other countries. There are millions of, uh, of foreigners in other countries, of course. Uh, the United States certainly, not, not even not counting the immigrants, the people who are, who are here temporarily for work, study, uh, well exceeds this number. Uh, and in, in Europe, you'll find a similar situation with a lot of people from different countries um, living and working in the country itself. Um, however, it's a peak, we're at a peak for China. And if you're thinking about foreign espionage threats, then maybe this is a bit alarming. Next slide, please. Before 2016, uh, specifically November 2015, when intelligence and security organs were uh, reorganized in part by Xi Jinping, these were the players the People's Liberation Army, second, third, and fourth departments. The second department doing human intelligence was particularly active overseas. Um, and among their agents was, uh, was Chi Mak and his family. Uh, that's C-H-I space M-A-K. Uh, a fascinating case that is uh, outlined in our book. 
uh, Chimok and his family, I think, rivaled the Walkers, the, who spied for the Soviet Union, rivaled the Walkers in, uh, in length of service and effectiveness and damage done to the United States. Um, among other things, uh, the Chimok spy ring um, obtained information on silent um, uh, submarine technology and space shuttle technology through uh, an agent in their network who was passing stuff through them to go to China. Then there's the Ministry of State Security, um, which in 1983 uh, was, was founded because of the increasing number of foreigners popping up in China uh, and had mostly a counter espionage mission for its first few decades. They did have agents abroad, uh, but for the most part, uh, they focused on China itself and finding spies. And indeed, if you go to YouTube um, and you put in, uh, um, I don't know if it works in English, but if you put in uh, Guajia Mimi, that's Guajia Mimi, um, State Secrets. Uh, that's the, the uh, title of a very popular television series uh, from the mid 2000s that, uh, that was, um, all about state security, finding Chinese people who were spying for foreign countries. Um, actually fairly well produced, not, not particularly cheesy, surprisingly. Uh, the Ministry of Public Security uh, during this time was working on uh, tracking dissidents. They're the ones who were responsible for uh, tracking down Falun Gong practitioners, for tracking down uh, other unauthorized religious practitioners, including Christians. Um, and, and they were also responsible for uh, tracking down people who were political dissidents, uh, who wanted to uh, uh, promote democracy and so forth. They had a problem though, in this uh, disparate intelligence community, there was a lack of cooperation and coordination. Sometimes uh, they were actually hostile to each other. Next slide, please. The Ministry of State Security, um, has changed, we'll get into the, the reorganization in just a moment, but uh, they had um, some notable successes, uh, including capturing 12 to 20, and lately I'm hearing 30, um, Chinese assets of the CIA in, in earlier this uh, last decade. Um, and the OPM hack apparently is attributed to them. Um, one of their notable successes is in spite of the number of foreigners climbing in China and the, uh, the um, uh, advent of the internet in China and all of the access to the outside world that comes with it, they've maintained a near total control over the residences of diplomats and journalists and business people. Uh, and also of course, uh, uh, they and other agencies have, have managed to control the internet very, very well after stumbling a bit during the late 90s and early 2000s. Next slide, please. One of the things I should have mentioned about state security is that they're not like CIA in their structure. Um, they do not operate mostly out of the headquarters in Beijing. Instead, they have state security bureaus uh, in various provinces. And, um, and these different bureaus have different responsibilities that are not uh, certainly not 100% clear, but it is apparent that, for example, the Shanghai State Security Bureau has responsibilities against the United States. Uh, the Jiangsu State Security Bureau is the one that sent the, uh, 
unlucky Xu Yanjun to Belgium to meet with an employee of, uh, of um, General Electric to get the secrets of their, their carbonized uh, turbofan technology that allowed for extra hot engines that go extra fast. Um, so um, uh, it would seem that the Jiangsu State Security Bureau has responsibilities in technology diversion. Um, but this is all this is all like a big puzzle, the pieces of which we don't really have, at least uh, out here in the unclassified world. Um, so the State Security Commission, the Central State Security Commission, which was formed uh, in the wake of the reorganization, um, is now apparently a much more powerful institution than the former um, Central Political and Legal Commission that was in control of uh, law enforcement and intelligence before then. Um, they seem to be in, in uh, a position to implement much better coordination between these agencies. And one of the things they're doing is, um, is um, trying to regain information dominance, that is the dominance of information that the, that the Mao regime had before his uh, 1976 death because of China's um, uh, isolation from the world, to regain that dominance um, using technology. And indeed, there's a very good paper written by Edward Schwark um, about how that has all happened in the Ministry of Public Security. Okay, next slide, please. So I'm, I'm gonna be a little bit repetitive here, um, but, but the reason is that this is kind of complicated. Um, and that is that CCP espionage uh, is professional. It has many of the aspects that, that are observable of other espionage organizations. Uh, at the same time, they have their own characteristics. Um, they have had a long and troubled evolution, um, full of purges and setbacks and disasters, um, but they've always managed to bounce back. I'll give them credit for that. Um, they use classic espionage tradecraft, just like everybody else. Uh, they don't go out and and recruit tens of thousands of people to uh, spy on you in Chinese restaurants, it would seem. Rather, they more carefully choose their people. And there's a reason for that, because um, CCP intelligence officers are, uh, are a conservative bunch. They tend to be true believers in Marxism, and they also tend to be true believers in the idea that China's, Chinese society is full of enemies. So my hypothesis that requires more study that I would put forth is that they, um, they are very careful whom they recruit. They don't just recruit everybody going overseas to study physics. They probably look at, um, at family background and uh, reliability, politically speaking, um, and, and potential vulnerabilities just like anybody else would when they recruit agents to uh, bring back information, even if it's just in a, uh, a casual way because they don't want to be betrayed. Um, they have a very active military intelligence operation now with the uh, strategic support force doing the technical intelligence, including signal intelligence and the PLA intelligence bureau doing human intelligence, but the, the actual um, responsibilities of, uh, for example, the PLA intelligence bureau, uh, are still underdefined and require further study. 
Uh, of course, they're after advanced technology whenever they can get it. And it's also an open question, um, the extent to which the Thousand Talents Program, the Confucius Institutes, the United Front Work Department, and the International Liaison Department of the party are actually performing any sort of intelligence work because there's been indications of that, but it's, uh, and, I, and I think um, reading the book by Nick Eftemiadis is uh, very instructive here. He's examined over 500 cases and there are a number of them that seem to uh, point in that direction. But again, um, um, I think we're only, we're only dancing on the tip of the iceberg when we look at this stuff so far. Okay, next slide, please. Uh, like in the 1940s, uh, they're not doing this just because they're crazy, paranoid uh, bolshies or anything. Uh, it's because there are actual um, problems that uh, counterespionage problems that they face, um, starting with those people they captured in 2010 to 2012, uh, who included uh, a senior aide to a vice minister of, of state security, um, and their occasional claims that Taiwan spies are everywhere. Uh, which may be exaggerated, but probably represent um, a real threat. The, the spies from Taiwan were not such a big deal back in the 50s and 60s because they had trouble infiltrating the mainland. But once China opened up and money became more important in Chinese society, uh, this changed the game and probably made it much easier for Taiwan's uh, military intelligence bureau and others to penetrate the mainland and find what they were looking for. Next slide, please. So now getting down to uh, something that is uh, practical in nature beyond uh, actual espionage. Uh, espionage and other problems, um, forced technology transfer, for example, have had their effect on the US business community. Um, the US-China Business Council 2020 member survey, which you can find online and is uh, uh, is available at no cost, um, has this table in it uh, and other information indicating that uh, people are still making money in China, American companies are still making money in China, but that the number of companies that are being asked to transfer technology uh, is going up. It's never been at 100% or even 50% because most companies that go there do not have uh, technology that is required in the latest five-year plan or military planning or anything else. Um, but the point is that it's more than doubled uh, in a year, the number of companies being asked to transfer technology. Um, next slide, please. And this leads us to another very important development, and that is the use of artificial intelligence um, and the so-called informatization of um, intelligence to um, recapture the information dominance once held under the Maoist state. Um, and they're doing a good job of it. You've probably seen some of the writings, for example, of Paul Mosier in the New York Times um, about uh, the extent to which artificial intelligence is being used to accomplish uh, the goals of being able to surveil the entire populace um, in black mirror fashion, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, uh, part of that, of course, is the infamous social credit system, which is popular in China, I have to say, um, because uh, 
China, besides being full of enemies um, in the eyes of the Communist Party, China is full of people who, um, who um, want to cheat you out of your money. And the social credit system is a welcome development for people who are tired of being cheated um, in business dealings, in, uh, in, in ordinary public settings, and so on. And so it's, uh, it's not like this is a uh, totalitarian, I have to say, it's not like this is a totalitarian state that, uh, that everybody hates and can't wait to overthrow. That's not the case. The Chinese Communist Party is not going away. Uh, they've managed to set up something that is uh, uh, popular with uh, many people in society, in particular, those who are more well off. Uh, if you go to China and uh, you can find in every major city um, shooting gallery places where you can go and practice with a shotgun and you can practice with a 22 rifle and with pistols and so forth. And it costs money to go to these places and pop off a few rounds with your boys or whatever it is you're doing. Um, and you'll find, of course, that because it costs money, that the people who are, who are there practicing how to hit targets are the, from the upper crust of society. And that's, that's a very interesting idea just in itself. Um, beyond that, speaking of the upper crust of society, it is now possible, if you have the money, to purchase um, um, surveillance equipment. Um, covert cameras and, uh, and listening devices and other such toys. Um, the one you see here came from, a, on the bottom right, came from an ad uh, from a private investigations firm. Of course, compared to the latest, uh, uh, more recent technology that you'd see in the International Spy Museum, this is a gigantic boat anchor, but it's only the size of a, of a few coins. Uh, and uh, it's available now. It used to be you had to go to Hong Kong to get this sort of thing, but now you can buy it by mail order on the mainland. Next slide, please. So again, uh, to review, China conducts espionage mostly like other nations. There are a couple of, uh, they're a little bit cheesy, but they're good. Um, these uh, Game of Pawns video about a professional operation against Glenn Duffy Shriver uh, and uh, and the FBI's company man video about the effort to uh, obtain technology for fireproof glass from a dissatisfied employee. Um, they, again, they run operations with, um, with uh, tradecraft like a lot of other people use and they keep control over their agents, um, but they have also started to set up this um, enormous, very effective surveillance state that is only going to become more vociferous over time. Um, and uh, a lot of their operations are meant to uh, advance the Chinese economy, number one, advance the economy, number two, advance the military. Um, uh, and it tends to go to state-owned enterprises who need it. Um, they don't force cooperation of every student headed abroad or of every Chinese restaurant owner, certainly. Um, and they don't only recruit ethnic Chinese to spy. Um, they, are, uh, they are after national security information, but also trade secrets. Next slide, please. And so now again, a review of the main messages that I just basically uh, reviewed, um, but including the fact that uh, the Chinese Communist Party's policies under Xi Jinping have made the PRC a much higher risk environment for business espionage study and tourism than it was 10 years ago. Next slide, please.
And those are the facts as I believe they exist. What are your questions? Thank you, Dr. Brazil, for a very insightful lecture and we will take questions from now. The first question is, how can we get a copy of slides? So um, after the event is over, about a week later, we'll send out um, a link uh, hat that has um, PowerPoint slides. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brazil, for a most informative presentation. Can you comment on China's Belt and Road Initiative? Specifically, while it is supposedly a purely economic initiative, can you speculate as to the role, if any, of Chinese intelligence in this effort? Yeah, I could speculate, but I'd probably be wrong. So the Belt and Road Initiative is, um, is in part um, economic, of course, but it's also in part meant to, um, to make more secure China's um, supply chain between it and uh, parts west. So uh, why is that an issue? Because the US Navy is so dominant on the seas. Um, the US Navy may have trouble in the future, I hope not, um, with the Chinese Navy in the near waters around China. Uh, and of course the Chinese Navy is trying to expand and become a blue water Navy. Um, but the point is that uh, that the sea lanes, in, in, if there were a conflict, would not be safe. So the Belt and Road is partly intended to, um, to uh, remedy that problem. Uh, then as far as, as um, um, the use of intelligence um, uh, opportunities presented by the Belt and Road, um, there are a lot of opportunities there. And I would be remiss to say that there's just no evidence, so we should ignore it. Um, at the same time, though, this is something that requires a lot more study. Um, there's, uh, uh, if, if Nick is on, Nick Eftemiatis is on, he might have something to say about this based on his uh, study of uh, so many different cases um, concerning es Chinese espionage. The next question is, how are they managing their spying in Silicon Valley? Many years ago, um, when I was um, a diplomat in China, one of my main contacts was a gentleman from the um, um, from one of the big Chinese electronics companies, which was a state-owned enterprise. And then a few years later, when I entered the private sector and would occasionally come back to the United States for meetings. Um, working in East Asia, um, I learned that the same gentleman was um, was now at the Chinese consulate in San Francisco and was known to be going down to where I am now in San Jose uh, to visit contacts and and uh, and have a good time. So um, uh, it's true uh, that so back in those early days, that was the um, that was the method, it seemed, uh, in the 19, late 1990s. 
but then when Chinese capital began to go overseas at the urging uh, first of um, the Hu Jintao regime and certainly under Xi Jinping, uh, now here in Silicon Valley, um, there are many Chinese businesses that are here um, uh, to invest. They include um, businesses that belong to individual provinces. They include businesses that belong to individual ministries. Uh, and their VCs, their venture capital, um, um, venture capital businesses. So what are they doing? Um, that's a great question. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a business center here, uh, sort of like a WeWork that is, um, is, that was set up by a Beijing company and it's a big place. It's, it's, uh, it's got a lot of space. It's got a lot of people in it. Um, pre-COVID, um, and they had seminars there all the time, several of which I've attended, um, uh, to talk about investment, to talk about technology transfer, um, and of course the investment is, um, is often focused on artificial intelligence uh, and other related uh, uh, technologies that uh, where China now seems to be uh, set to take the lead. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot going on around here and I know the, the Bureau and the FBI is very active, um, but I don't have any secrets to spill on that front. Next question. Um, what are the Chinese doing to attack government teleworkers and other teleworkers during COVID? Government, what kind of workers? Teleworkers and other teleworkers during COVID? Oh, um, well, during COVID, that's a good question. I don't know, but, um, but prior to this time, of course, um, you've seen the, the news items about LinkedIn being used to, um, to um, uh, recruit people. Um, and and uh, there've been a lot of um, alarmist warnings about being, be careful who you friend on LinkedIn or who you, who you, uh, who you become associated with on LinkedIn. Um, but I think that, uh, that the main thing is to, is to just use common sense when dealing with people um, in social media, um, not being sucked in um, Nigerian uh, style, you know, to, uh, to, any associations that might lead to you becoming compromised. Um, but, uh, but we've also heard reports, of course, about, um, about um, good old Zoom being used. Um, whether, that, whether or not that's true, I don't know. Um, but I think that because of, of teleworking uh, being more popular now, um, therefore, uh, the Chinese Communist Espionage has always focused on wherever the opportunities are, just like everybody else does. In the 1930s, they were in the cities because that's where the Japanese and the nationalists were, and that's where the intelligence was. Um, in later years, they, they established themselves overseas in countries where they, they had uh, interests in knowing what was going on. And now, of course, um, with, uh, with the drive to to improve the economy and improve the military. Um, they're all over Silicon Valley um, in many different forms. And who's, who's a genuine VC, venture capitalist, and who is uh, an intelligence officer is an open question. Um, 
but with the FBI opening up one case, I think every 10 hours, um, uh, there's bound to be a lot going on on social media as well as uh, on the ground. The next question is, how aware and alert are US companies doing business in PRC? Are we sufficiently vigilant and prepared to counter the threat versus simply chasing more profits? I think the answers are not and no. <laughs> so I've found um, in, in doing surveys with, um, with um, corporate investigation firms, um, the names are obvious and you see them all over the place. Um, when I speak to people who work in these firms and who have corporate clients, I find that they are pessimistic about the level of awareness. Um, one comment I've heard over and over again is that American companies tend to A, think quarter to quarter, which always is a difficulty for any long-term planning, and B, they tend to want to um, not take preventative steps that might be seen by some managers in the company as uh, being unnecessary. In other words, not spending a bunch of money to try to counter something that might happen. Uh, instead, they wait for the problem to develop and then they throw money at it. I've heard that over and over again. They just want to wait for problems to develop and then throw money at it when, when that happens. And when it comes to certain problems, that is very um, unwise. In particular, um, preventing for, uh, rather uh, preparing for uh, a difficult period where evacuation of, of families and employees might be indicated. Um, because if that time comes, everybody's gonna wanna go at once. The companies that have, have been spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on what amounts to evacuation insurance will be in a decent position because they'll have reserved seats on airplanes that will come in. Uh, that is if those airplanes are allowed to even come in and leave. Um, but companies that are not well positioned uh, will be left in a difficult uh, position. And that's partly because there are so many foreigners in China now compared to 1989, the last time there was a mass evacuation of foreigners. Even back then, it was a very difficult uh, operation, which you can read about in uh, James Lilly's book, China Hands, um, the late James Lilly, uh, where he describes, he was ambassador to China in 1989, and he describes that operation. Uh, but now there are, I don't know how many times more foreigners in China than there were then, and it would be difficult. And the next question is, it seems as though China's military intelligence plays the largest role amongst, amongst the intelligence agencies. Is this a correct assessment? And if so, why? Well, they were more powerful for many years, the military in general, um, particularly after um, the Tiananmen Square incident in 1989. Um, and they simply had more people out overseas doing more things. Uh, than state security did. Now, the reorganization on paper seems to indicate that state security, the, state, the Ministry of State Security now has a primary responsibility for foreign intelligence operations abroad. And 
if that's the case, um, that would be an interesting thing to know more about from the inside, because whenever these transitions have occurred in the history of CCP intelligence, they've always been slow. Uh, for example, when the, um, when the Social Affairs Department was abolished in August of 1949, um, it took years for those officers, especially out in the provinces, to be transferred over, for example, to the Ministry of Public Security if they had uh, counterintelligence uh, duties. So the question of whether or not there's been an instant transformation uh, is an interesting one. Um, I don't know of any evidence, of, for example, of military uh, intelligence people who operate abroad being transferred over to state security. Uh, that's the officers. And I don't know of any evidence that, that uh, uh, agents that they're running uh, were transferred over to state security. So that's an interesting question. And it requires, I keep saying this, I sound like a jack-in-the-box or a, a parrot. More study. The next question is, how is China providing intelligence support to the DPRK? It would seem the PRC regards the DPRK with mixed feelings, given Kim Jong-un's somewhat brash behavior. I don't have any information about that. Um, that's a very interesting question, but I just can't comment intelligently. The next question is, Thank you, Dr. Brazil. You mentioned in your presentation, many Chinese citizens appreciated the social media scoring system, suggested the increased transparency helped avoiding cheating. From an economic and socioeconomic perspective, do you believe more Chinese aim for a centralized communist or Marxist type system or decentralized free markets based system? I think I heard all that, but what's the central question really? I think the central question is, from an economic and socioeconomic perspective, do you believe more Chinese aim for a centralized slash communist or Marxist type system or decentralized slash free markets based system? Um, Xi Jinping seems to be a, uh, not only a student of Chinese Communist Party history and a really good one, uh, he also seems to be a committed socialist. Uh, he has strengthened um, not only the control and the, um, and the business uh, abilities of state-owned enterprises. He has also identified national champions, as they're called, that are not state-owned enterprises, but receive substantial assistance from the government and are subject to control through the Communist Party committees in those businesses. Um, and outstanding examples are Huawei and Lenovo. Um, so it seems as though um, Xi Jinping and the leadership now are aiming toward uh, constructing a system that is unique to their own country, that stresses um, socialist state control of industry and of the economy itself so that, uh, so that they are less subject to the winds of change. Um, and in particular, um, one of the problems they face and that they want to make sure they control is, uh, is the level of debt in society and the economic impact that could have if, uh, if Adam Smith were running things. Um, 
with socialist control of the economy, um, the uh, effects of, of these negative problems, uh, these difficulties can be minimized in their eyes, I think. The next question is, do you foresee Chinese social unrest, particularly amongst the predominant lower classes growing in the, in the coming years? And given the enhanced domestic surveillance capabilities of the Chinese government, that this social unrest will possibly reach a point reminiscent to the 1989 Tiananmen Square uprising? I think that the state is, um, and its uh, security apparatus are very powerful. And it's gonna be difficult um, to rise up against it. And part of the reason for this is that the number of poor people in society seems to be going down. The number of well-to-do people in society seems to be going up. Of course, there's, um, they may have a, an income inequality problem that exceeds our own. Um, but the point is that, uh, that they, they see this as a, as a potential problem that is a uprising from below. And they're being, I think, um, in, in a, uh, it, it's not nice, it's not good, it's not, uh, not something I would endorse but they're doing a really good job of figuring out ways to keep everything under control. And they're doing it by assembling an ultra surveillance state that so far looks pretty effective. The next question is, could you speak a bit more about the threat of espionage from the Confucius Institutes? The Confucius Institutes are very interesting organizations. Nominally, they are under the Ministry of Education. And they seem to be populated by people who have some diplomatic skill. Now I'm, I'm speaking ad hoc here. So I spent some time um, when I was finishing my dissertation um, late in life at um, Portland State University. And I lived in an apartment building, which also housed everybody from the Confucius Institute. So being a nice boy, um, I got involved with helping the Confucius Institute people um, make clear to the apartment management, which was, of course, was run by a large corporate landlord, um, that these were PR, I, I participated in a meeting with them, with some Confucius Institute people, to just make clear to them that these are not people who have $10,000 in the bank and make $5,000 a month and so forth. Their, their, um, their, their rent is actually being paid by uh, the Chinese state. And as long as you sign a contract with the right people, then it's gonna be okay. It's not like um, uh, the same risk you'd have with somebody who had a low income um, uh, in, who is an American uh, citizen. Um, and, uh, and so I was friendly with the people from the Confucius Institute until they discovered the subject of my dissertation, which was the early history of um, CCP intelligence. And from then on, every time I'd run into them, when 30 seconds had elapsed, they were gone every single time. It was, it was uh, highly amusing. Um, now the Confucius Institute people I observed there were um, 
regularly putting on um, presentations, um, bringing in speakers from different places to talk about China. Uh, sometimes they would have, one time they had a, a speaker from uh, Harvard University who um, was not in any way pro-communist and he was a, an American citizen. He referred to the Chinese Communist Party as a large gangster organization while he was standing in front of the Confucius Institute's uh, banner in a conference room on the Portland State University campus. Um, and they were, they handled it like diplomats. They didn't get upset. They didn't throw things at him. They didn't kick him out. They didn't end the session. Um, so they, they were fairly sophisticated people. Um, the people in charge were, um, they all had PhDs and they were effective at what they were doing. And the Chinese language department in the university hated their guts <laughs> because they were taking students away. Um, so I think that, that the, the people I observed had um, good social skills, good diplomatic skills. Um, they didn't just send anybody. And uh, of course, it's possible to use the Confucius Institutes under these circumstances as a cover. Now, what would you be doing? Um, you would probably be spotting people that might be on their way to uh, work for the US intelligence community or the State Department. Uh, you might be looking for people who, um, who uh, were particularly anti-China in their minds so that uh, uh, eventually when necessary pressure could be applied. And indeed we've heard stories about that over and over again uh, with Chinese consulates uh, calling up city councils, universities, um, you know, don't let the Dalai Lama come visit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's probably a mixed bag. There might be there might be some intelligence people there, but mostly Confucius Institute seems to be focused on influence. The next question is: The FBI has identified the risks of China's thousand talents program by recruiting experts who may potentially function as insiders in U.S. corporations to steal trade secrets, for example, advanced technology. What are your thoughts and how should companies in the U.S. protect them, themselves from falling victim to Chinese economic espionage? Hmm. Well, uh, the first part of the question, um, in response, I would say that, um, that there are, that there are um, always going to be problems related to um, people trying to steal trade secrets. Uh, and so, well, just overall, um, what should be done is um, you have to identify what your trade secrets are. Um, trade, a trade secret is not a patent. Of course, a patent is public information. Um, a trade secret is something that, uh, that gives you an edge in the marketplace and, and uh, that you keep confidential. And that's how you continue to have your edge in the market is by keeping it confidential. Um, so a lot of companies just take the attitude of, um, of um, plugging this gap by hiring lots of cybersecurity people, and that's necessary. You have to have a solid cybersecurity program in place uh, with training, not only um, for the equipment, but training people to avoid doing unfortunate things like clicking on the wrong link in an email uh, or something like that. But beyond that, um, when a target becomes too hard for cybersecurity, if 
if uh, an adversary really wants the information, then they're going to start using people. And if you have um, an environment where laptops are left out overnight unlocked, where cleaning people wander free uh, through the place uh, unescorted, where, um, where um, trade secrets are not clearly identified, where uh, papers are left out on desks all the time, where uh, documents are put into um, to trash bins that are then collected and, and one hopes destroyed properly, um, but maybe not, uh, then you've got a, a relatively uh, 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 vulnerable scenario. And beyond that, if you have people working in your company who um, feel as though they're not welcome in the United States anymore and they have relatives in a country that's trying to steal technology from you, then they may be inclined to um, not be assured that the company will back them up if they report um, an approach to steal technology. Um, your employees have to trust you. And in order to create an atmosphere where there's a high degree of employee loyalty, then you need more than just cybersecurity people. You need um, security professionals who know how to handle these situations. There are some companies that have done this really well. Um, and the bottom line with them is that the security people are known to be open. Uh, they're known to be not um, pejorative in the way they do their work. Um, they are above board. They work closely with uh, HR and they have an understanding of who works there and what problems they might face. And management is 100% uh, on the side of the employee if there's uh, some uh, threat of that sort. Um, that takes time. Um, and it's, it's the sort of thing where you're spending money to prevent a problem that might not ever happen in the eyes of many managers. And a lot of managers just won't be convinced about the necessity to uh, take these steps to protect the human element as well as the, uh, the servers. The next question is, can you comment on where you see the future of Hong Kong given recent pro-democracy pro protests? It seems that the... Um, that the party has been very effective in um, tamping down protest by, by making clear to the Hong Kong um, population that they are now part of China and they should give up on thinking about anything else. And in a sense, um, this was inevitable. There's, there's, uh, in, in my mind, when, when the whole thing started, I'm, I'm afraid I was very pessimistic about the eventual outcome. Uh, much as I favored democracy and was rooting for the good guys, um, um, they, they pushed too hard, quite frankly, and they were not realistic. Um, and, and so that, that a lot of people don't want to hear that, but this is really the truth. Um, and so, um, uh, in China, in the past 10 years uh, or more, there's been a very uh, high degree of anxiety in the party about foreign spies. 
And when the Communist Party looks at Hong Kong, they see a place that's full of enemies, full of people who would be in, in jail if they did any of the things they do um, on the mainland in any, any particular day of the week. Um, so they are, um, they are determined to bring Hong Kong under control. They're not gonna give up. They're not gonna back down. Um, it would take a lot more than I think the, uh, the people of Hong Kong and the China's major trading partners are willing to do to reverse that course. So Hong Kong will uh, like it or not, um, it'll continue to be a financial center, um, but not as important. It'll continue to be a business center, but not as important. And that's been going on for a couple decades. Shanghai has been, has been rapidly uh, catching up with Hong Kong this whole time in all of those uh, areas. So Hong Kong will be less important, but still a major city. Due to the limited time, we can take two more questions after we go over the next question. So if you have any questions, please type in right now. The next question is, have there been studies on China's creation of their genome database as a form of surveillance slash intelligence gathering on their own population? All I can say to that is that I know that they are collecting as much as they can. Um, and this would be a logical extension of the use of artificial intelligence to recognize facial features, uh, the gait of a person's walk, and so on, um, that would uh, cement the ability to confirm a person's identity. Uh, but I have no specific information about it. Next question is, what will should the US do to challenge China? I have, to, I have to think that we need to go back to our basic values. Um, we, um, we have in the past thought of ourselves and been thought of as the beacon of uh, democracy uh, and freedom in the world. Uh, we have always been um, considered to be a welcoming um, place for uh, your tired, your poor, and your hungry, uh, for immigrants. And um, our strength is our ability to attract people from other countries who then um, increase our, among other things, increase our knowledge of other countries. Um, we, um, we need to be more like, uh, we need to move closer to our ideals, in my opinion. And that way we are a better example and we're stronger in the face of authoritarian suppression. Thank you. And if you don't have any more questions, I think we can close our presentation here. Thank you very much again for joining us today. It was such a wonderful, insightful lecture. You're very kind. Thank you.